This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Bonds. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we've got, well, some exciting news. Number one, Rosemary uh, Barnes will be joining us here today as our co- our new co-host. So, Alan, I don't know, is, is a co- what do we have to do? Try hosts now? What, what, what happens here? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how we, that works, right? Three co-hosts, but, yep, it's going to be great. So, we'll hear from her in a second. Uh, today's episode is going to be pretty exciting. We're going to talk about battery tech. We're going to talk about this really this terrible chinese offshore um installer vessel that is capsized so we'll talk about the implications of that i mean so much offshore wind is is getting going now where you know there's going to be accidents like this so we'll talk about the implications there um some projections and some ideas about engineering as we add offshore wind turbines uh, a really interesting case study of an oklahoma wind farm that's had a lot of problems and with safety and, and damage and we'll talk about and shuts investing in a Wyoming wind farm, which is pretty interesting that more and more of these um, fossil fuel companies are getting into renewable energy. And lastly, we'll talk about iron air batteries, which is a really exciting development and potentially has major implications for the grid. Uh, Before we get going, I want to remind you that we need to get you signed up for Uptime Tech News. So if you're interested in the podcast, if you've been a longtime listener, it's time to sign up. In the show notes, you'll find a link. You'll just get a weekly email from us that says, hey, we've got a new podcast. Here's what it's about. Here's some other great news from around the web. So definitely sign up for that today in the show notes wherever you listen. So here are my co-hosts. Uh, first, let's introduce Rosemary Barnes. This is your first episode back since you were a guest uh, way back when. <laughs> So, uh, Rosemary, a welcome back to the show. We're excited to have you. Can you give our guests uh, who maybe haven't caught your episode, or obviously it's been a couple months, could you just kind of give us a, a quick rundown of your background and and you know part of the reason we wanted to have you on the show is your expertise in wind energy and renewable energy. Um, so, what do our guests need to know about you and the expertise you you bring to the show? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so my career, I've been work, um, working developing renewable energy technologies for yeah the last fifteen plus years, and most recently in the wind industry. So I uh, got a PhD in composite material structural design of wind turbine blades, and then um, the last five years until about a year ago, I was working at LM Wind Power. So they're a wind turbine blade manufacturer. So I spent a lot of time in their factories and climbing turbines and you know, developing technologies for the wind industry. And then after I left LM Wind Power, I started my own consulting company, Pardalote, where I develop renewable energy technologies and other sustainability technologies. And I have my YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie, where I talk about the whole energy transition and help my viewers to understand the engineering involved there. Awesome. Well, like I said, we're excited to have you back here and we've got a, a good show today and 
I'm sure your uh, your expertise, especially as we cover, you know, some of the grid challenges towards the end, the battery technology and the composite stuff. That's going to be right up your alley. So excited to have you back. And then, Alan, how are you, sir? Doing great. We're just living through uh, the rainiest season in Massachusetts recorded history. So, so we're we're pretty much in the offshore business right now because the, we're just completely flooded out here. It's crazy. Well, here in DC, all we have is just mosquitoes, all the mosquitoes you could want. So, you know, pick, pick your poison, I guess. Um, but first on the docket, um, Alan, you know, we heard about this jack-up vessel tilting while installing an offshore wind farm in China. There's four missing. Uh, it looks like they haven't been found as of, it looks like a week later. Um, I mean, are we going to see more incidences like these? Well, you'd hope not, but I think until we develop the procedures and the safety situations in which wind terms are going to be installed offshore, the answer is going to be yes. Uh, in this particular case, we were just watching the video of it again, and it's just amazing that that accident happened. Uh, but in the rush to finish a job, you know how it gets when you're in construction and you're trying to get things done and, and get it all put together. Sometimes safety is not the number one priority, and then that's when accidents happen so it's really disappointing to see it but hopefully unlike some of the other wind turbine things we've seen in the past where there's been an accident and the industry hasn't really glommed onto it and learned from it and the, when you start losing people uh, we need to take a good safety look at it and make sure that the safety implications get transferred to other offshore installations so Rosemary, you've worked with, uh, you know, on, on big projects like this with, you know, big corporations and wind power. What falls through the crack? Obviously, like anything can happen when we're in the open seas, right? But I mean, would you say that things like this seem like maybe a slip in in procedures or is it just this stuff is just going to happen every once in a while in, in a business like this? Oh, I don't think it can happen once in a while. I think that that would be uh, the end of the industry if this started to happen regularly. So I, I, I'm sure I hope and I'm sure that there will be an appropriate response um, to this. But it doesn't necessarily surprise me so much. I mean, I've never worked offshore, but any of my colleagues that I have uh, that have worked offshore and I've spoken with, they all have stories of near misses where you know they're watching the the wave high, they're watching the boys, the the buoys the Americans they're watching them um, the height wave height and seeing that it's coming up and up and up but you know there's so much pressure onshore as well you've got to find that weather window to be able to climb and if you've got something urgent to do and you know that this is the half day where the winds are going to be low enough that you can get in there then there's yeah an immense amount of pressure to, to get that up and you think um, that's just going to be dialed up for offshore because you've got more pieces that need to align to make good conditions right for a safe climb and the each turbine is just you know so, so much more costly to um, have have downtime so i can see that the pressure must be so much more immense to to climb and to push the limits and um yeah obviously they pushed it too far with tragic consequences um but i think that it's the, the response will be you know um the offshore oil and gas is known for it's just intense safety culture because there's no tolerance for anything to go wrong out there and it'll the same thing will have to happen with offshore wind which will no doubt add a bit of um cost and especially pain for new new projects if you can't you know you're trying to do something new if you can't get out there to maintain then it really makes timelines blow out um so 
yeah, it's going to be a hard balance, but it can't, you, you can't compromise on safety to the extent that people get killed every now and then. There's just no way that that's going to be acceptable, acceptable to anybody in the industry or outside of it. Yeah. And that's a good point because we've talked a bunch in recent episodes that, yeah, we gotta, we gotta throw 6 million more turbines into the ocean as fast as we can, right? Like everyone seems like they're scrambling to do things as quick as they can, but they can only go as fast as this, as the safety, you know, allows them to. Yeah. And Dan, is there a regulatory body that was going to monitor all, all of that? I, I know I, every, every country is going to have its own regulatory system, but I don't know if there is one in the United States, especially once you get a little bit offshore, like we're talking about in, in international waters or federal waters, I guess, who's going to oversee all that? Because you know, somebody's going to, in the United States, we would never let that go. There's going to be somebody overseeing it. Just it sounds like <laughs> they need to spool up. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Rosie, do you know, is there a is there a bigger regulatory body that the global? <laughs> Every country obviously has work cover or work safety um, systems in place. And, you know, every country where I've climbed, there's definitely a body that would come in and shut down a site if that was, um, you know, if that happened. The question about being in international waters, I I don't know. But again, like oil and the offshore oil and gas, I mean, they're just, it's got to be the safest industry that, that exists on the planet or, you know, they spend the most, the most effort on safety there. So um, I don't know whoever... Whoever monitors that, maybe. Well, speaking of uh, more installation, the UK is planning to install 40 gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2030. And uh, this interesting article by theconversation.com, which I'm not familiar with that that website, but they had some some good stuff as I was puttering around there. Um, they said basically this will require 5,000 wind turbines, double the number uh, installed worldwide offshore by the end of 2020. And you know, to get to this number of maybe 30,000 turbines by 2030, it, there's just going to be a lot of engineering breakthroughs that are going to have to happen to make this make this feasible. Um, Rosemary, I'll, I'll throw this to you first, but do you feel like that's, that's fair, that there's going to be a lot of, or, or do we have sort of enough of the floating platforms and the rigging and enough know-how from fossil fuel industry to where maybe it doesn't take that much more to, to get to, over that hurdle? Well, I think definitely they've learned a lot from that offshore oil and gas. So that's going to give a head start. But probably more importantly is everything they've learned from decades of onshore um, turbines. So it's not like, you know, when they put wave energy devices out at sea and they experience all these problems because it's brand new. You don't have that with wind energy because the vast majority of the problems have been sorted out through decades of gradual evolution. So I think we've got that head start. But that said, I mean, yeah, it's going to, there's going to be teething problems for sure. And especially as, I mean, we haven't really seen floating offshore yet. There's, you know, a couple of pilot projects, but um, yeah, I think we can, we can expect to see turbines occasionally tipping over and especially installation times blowing out on projects from time to time as we figure out what, you know, what are the, the new challenges that need to be taken care of with each project. Rosemary, do you think there's enough engineers in those areas to even support that kind of output. It seems like it's almost an impossible task. <laughs> There's never enough engineers. And, um, you know, um, the companies I was working for before, there was a huge shortage. And now I'm consulting and every company that I work with, they've got a huge shortage in engineers. Um, and I don't know if that is just like in every industry, that's the same. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think definitely for <laughs> any kids thinking about what to study at university, at college, then I think the engineering, uh, renewable engineering is probably a safe bet for <laughs> for continued employment. 
Yeah, and that's that's what's really interesting, you know, as the world continues to evolve, because here in the U.S. at least, college is looking like more and more of a, do I need to go? Can I just get a certificate? Can I do this digital thing? I mean, I, I advise some of the younger kids, you know, I used to work with, um, you know, baseball and softball players a lot uh, in my my previous lines of work. And we had that conversation. We're like, look, you don't have to go to college to be successful. There's a lot of other things you can do. That's always been true, like with trades. Um, but it's probably more so now than ever. You could. There's just lots of different ways to to make together or to cobble together a living, living or just do lots of different things that are very skill intensive on the web. Where, hey, if I'm not going to engineering school now. I'm never, never going to be on that track. So it might be harder to get kids just, you know, because to get on the engineering track, you at least have to be at a four-year college, you know, to start, right? To ha- but if you're staying home doing a certificate or doing something else, um, you know, in this digital economy. I mean, Alan, do you, do you feel like, obviously, your son, Adam, just uh, graduated with his degree in engineering. Um, I mean, do you feel like even his generation is starting to slow down as far as enrollment? It's interesting t- because... I followed the group of kids. We live in a small town, so I followed the group of kids since they were essentially in kindergarten, first grade till graduation and now out of college. And it's interesting because I thought I live in a town which is very uh, university centric. It's a university town or a college town. There's a lot of professors that live in town and the children of professors you figure are going to go to university. And that has changed dramatically over their lifespan over the last 20 years, because a lot of them have decided not to go to university or college. They're doing things, they're traveling the world, they're doing uh, things that I did not expect when they were 10 years old. Uh, So you're you're seeing, I think you're seeing a real shift. And I I think the cost of college is part of that. Um, But if you're doing something technical like rosemary and and me you have to go to college there's just no nobody's going to let you loose (laughs) in an engineering uh, place of facility without having the the degree to go with it just because there's so many implications on safety and it sounds like you're saying that i can't get a google certificate and be an aerospace engineer in six weeks is that right well i i don't want you working on my airplane (laughs) fine fine but you can be a wind turbine technician that, there's also a big need for wind turbine That's technicians. True. Right. So, uh, and that is also a path. I know it's not so common in Australia, maybe the US, but in Denmark, so many of my colleagues had a, a trade, first of all, you know, they were an electrician or a carpenter um, or even a farmer. And then um, later in life, they went back to university, got their degree, and now they're, you know, some of them the best engineers because they, you know, they've got, they've got both both sides they know the hands-on stuff as well as the you know like the mental stuff so um that's another option well we get requests all the time through the website that ask about being a wind turbine technician and some of the articles we have posted on our site also talk about being a wind turbine technician and that's one of the things about it is and when people ask us this question is how much does it cost to be qualified to work on wind turbines it's actually not that much compared definitely to definitely a lower a, barrier to entry uh, than a four-year yeah yes. degree in the yeah, u.s yeah. now which is oh yeah in many cases, like I have a degree in philosophy, kids, it'll be it'll be Me good too. for your good for your brain. Hey, <laughs> high five! But uh, may not get you employed right away. I don't know. That's also a changing a changing conversation because there's a lot. I, I feel like in the U.S. there's a much more there's been much more emphasis of like do accounting so you can be an accountant, right? Do this so you can be that. 
where is it seems like almost it's it's becoming a little bit cyclical where now it's like people do like the philosophy majors because they have a kind of wide skill set mentally where they can like think on their feet they can problem solve you can kind of leave them alone they can write a technical paper they can they don't need babysitting right because you learn those skills in that major um it, it, so it's, it's interesting how you see this stuff come back over time Um, so moving on, I mean, speaking of safety, uh, interesting article from the Oklahoman. Um, so for those of you who are global listeners, Oklahoma is in the uh, American Southwest. Um, and, you know, Alan, is that is it still in the Midwest? Where, where Did I say it right? I would qualify it Midwest. It's just north of Texas. <laughs> Texas, Oklahoma, yeah. Kansas, Nebraska. All right. So it's in the it's in the Midwest. It's in a very yes. flat place of, of our country. Um <laughs> But there's this crazy old wind farm that if you've seen any of these uh, images floating around the web of a wind turbine that looks like it's wilted, like it's literally melted in the sun, or that the nacelle has caught on fire and just burnt to a crisp, there's a good chance that those photos came from this wind farm. So it's been sitting around uh, for quite a while now and just like sort of look A, looking very haphazard, B, looking like a risk because like, hey, are these blades just going to fall off any given day? Like, is this tower going to topple over? But they had a lot of problems with with lightning. Um, so this was the uh, it was in the Oklahoma Panhandle. Um, this was the Novus One and Two Wind Facility. So it sounds like they're working on getting these fixed and getting this either back into service. Not maybe all of the turbines, but many of them. Rosemary, how often do you see stuff like this happen? Uh, I mean, is this common where you see a, a, a wind farm that's been just sort of decimated by by lightning and just by this much damage? No, I never saw something like that before. I was shocked uh, when I when I had a look at that article. It made me really sad, actually. Um, you see one of those wind turbines that looked like like the blades of bananas and, you know, it's just the peels left and it was kind of like... <laughs> That was the, the saddest thing I've ever seen, um, wind turbine-wise. Um, and you'd say it's old, but when I the article said that it was commissioned in 2012. So, I mean, it's it's not that old. And when they first started to have problems, it, it was probably quite new. Um, so the manufacturer is not in um, – they're, they're not operating anymore, and perhaps that's a good thing. But, um, yeah, there's obviously – massive problems with their design on multiple levels because it wasn't like oh yeah it was just lightning for all of these turbines there's clearly a few different things that have happened so i don't know getting it back into operation how do you even go through with the manufacturer doesn't exist so how, how do you get access to all the information that you would need to be able to even know where to start to to fix these up and i mean obviously they passed certification at some point but um you know, I would want to see most of that redone because I don't want to be anywhere near this this, <laughs> this wind farm when it starts up unless, you know, it's really been gone over with a fine-tooth comb. Well, Rosemary, does that have implications for offshore wind also? Just thinking about the time frame in which that happened and the sort of the resulting uh, problems that they had since then, if you're going to install a lot of offshore wind, like we're talking about in, in the UK, do you start selecting vendors and oems based on on that track record because it's gonna be a cost thing right is that uh the oems that produce quality wind turbines know that and they know that the the downside risk is massive for a country that's going to go 
wind energy wise versus somebody who's new on the block what do you think that they're going how do they how does that even get played out in in terms of buying a wind turbine yeah, so I've worked through that process on a few projects with brand new technologies. The banks are really nervous and maybe because they've learned through experiences like this, obviously someone lost a whole bunch of money on this wind farm, right? Um, so the, the banks really care about the technology. And if it hasn't been, hasn't got a track record, uh, if it hasn't got a track record, then they will, the banks, um, will send teams of people to come and grill the engineers working on it to say, you know, um, this could go wrong. What have you done to make sure that that's not going to happen? What's your test program like? Um, what's previous versions of the technology and what have you learned from them? So they're trying really hard to minimize that risk. And ideally, they'll, they won't be just putting out a hundred turbine wind farm for, um, you know, a new manufacturer would not start their offshore journey with a hundred wind turbines out there. They would start with one, ideally. And that's what you do see with, you know, like when you hear about the floating wind projects, for example, it's not like, oh yeah, here's, here's a hundred turbine, um, wind farm. It's like we've, we've taken one out there. And then hopefully the next time you'll have a few because obviously you learn different things from different sites. The, you know, the ocean and the wind aren't the same everywhere. Um, but yeah, it's, you got to do it a little bit gradually and they have learned so much. Most of the problems they, um, are well aware of from the onshore. So it's the new offshore specific problems that are the, the main ones that they're going to have to deal with. Well, how valuable is certification in, in, in terms of the, one, I mean, obviously, those wind turbines had to be certified, quote unquote certified, and pretty much all wind turbines are today. But do we have that feedback loop uh, that the certification we did on a on a new wind turbine is actually working? Because you're not going to the worst that's going to happen is what happens in Oklahoma that you just the wind turbines just catch fire or they stop operating. In terms of a grid or safety or a community, it doesn't make that much difference. So is what I'm wondering is how does that certification then get readjusted or is it is it constantly evolving over time and so we're learning things and putting it back into certification so the next one doesn't have that problem because it doesn't feel like that quite yet. Uh, it's definitely evolving, but it's behind the manufacturers um, because obviously they can't respond to something that hasn't happened yet. And I know that you know most um, design engineers will tell you that certain parts of the certification are unnecessarily strict. You know they're requiring um, standards that don't really correlate to the the field, but. The converse is true as well, that there's some standards that it's kind of widely assumed that just meeting the standard is not enough. And the manufacturers are really driven by, you know, the performance of their, their system. And I think that the biggest example of that is Lightning, which you're obviously familiar with that. They're all certified, but um, most Lightning engineers would not say just because you've got a Lightning certificate means everything's going to be fine. Um, you also have to, you know, design based on your field experience. And, um, yeah, it's usually quite quite a bit above. Like It's easy to design something that can get certified, but not as easy to design something that's going to be very reliable in the field. Our, in our next segment here, let's talk about GE. So they have just released a press release uh, that Ellen Wind Power, which uh, they own, is essentially completed a automated blade finishing program. So, Rosie, obviously you've worked for LM, you've been there. 
um, you know what, what this process looks like, uh, you know, and how much manual labor is in it, how much robotics and automation they're working into it. But it says that their vision is to leverage, um, you know, a lot of the things they've learned over the years, but to just start to decrease costs by doing some of the trimming and some of these other finishing parts. Um, so obviously, how much labor goes into um, you know, these final parts. And is this really as big a deal as, as they make it seem? Oh, well, I was really excited when I saw this. Um, I, I think that we need to get more automation in general in wind turbine manufacturing. Um, and I do sort of feel like the industry was a bit against it. They sort of, you know, um, had a big push 10, maybe a bit more years ago and sort of put it in the too hard basket. So it's really nice to see GE coming along and, you know, like giving it the, the resources that it needed to succeed. And I think that finishing is probably a, a really smart candidate for, you know, one of the first processes to automate because it's a hard job. You know, it's a team of people with, um, with grinders, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, they're there, they're, they're all day in the same position with this big vibrating, um, thing. It is very, it's very hard job. So, um, I would love to see the, <laughs> the grinding replaced. And then with the trimming, you know, that's something where you can make mistakes and, um, not necessarily it's harder to detect maybe than some of the other potential faults that you can get in a in a wind turbine blade. So I think that that's another really good process to automate to improve quality. And then the final reason why I like it is because, um, you know, the leading edge, they're finished by hand, but it's also just the absolutely most critical part of the blade aerodynamically. And you're kind of just eyeballing it um, when you when you grind away, you know, all the excess that you get in the manufacturing process. So automating that so that you can guarantee that the you know design intent is is actually there. I think that that's um, going to going to give some um uh, aerodynamic improvements as well. And are there any any spots? Because obviously, when you talk about automation, there are some problems still that are just too hard for a robot to figure out when they require some nuance, they require, you know, maybe they change from one molding to the next. Um, are there any parts of the finishing process or just the process in general that you feel like that they might never be automated out? I don't think there's anything that will never be automated, but I think that, um, yeah, there's going to be, uh, <laughs> you obviously start with the easiest or the ones that give you the best return on investment now and then move to the harder ones later. I think uh, a lot of the repairs, you know, they don't just do the same repair on every blade. It depends what um, what defect you've found. And so I, I don't think you'll ever totally get rid of human involvement there. Um, and I think that that will stay manual probably longer than a lot of the other processes and alan obviously you know with airplane design and, and your significant background in, in the aerospace industry is this something that they've been doing for a while is this something that they've been coming around to just the same is the wind industry behind or ahead or is this just sort of in a different category by itself they're about at the same place right now there's not a lot of robotic painting going on besides honda jet and the military those are the two places where you see it. And Honda Jet's a relatively small aircraft, but the consistency of it is why they're doing it. And obviously Honda as a corporation puts a lot of, of emphasis on quality and looks and finish. So that makes sense from an airplane standpoint. But like, uh, at least to my knowledge, like Boeing or Airbus doesn't, they still have people crawling around on airplanes, painting airplanes. So the the wind turbine industry doing it, it's a little bit odd. I, I kind of wonder if it has a lot to do with durability too on the coatings that it, unless you get a very 
consistent uh, coating thickness and also cure time and making sure that everything is just right. I wonder if the coating durability is going down. And if you automated it and get very consistent with the way the coatings go on, can you extend the life of the coatings, particularly around the leading edges and some of the places that historically wind turbines have had problems? And on airplanes, that has been the case. A lot of times on airplanes, when you go to an airport and you see an airplane, that the paint just looks awful. Most of that has to do with the, the, the prep of the surface and the application of the, of the paint. That extends houses cars boats all the same thing so consistency in the in the paint is really critical you'd be surprised how much technique there is involved in that and doing it robotically sort of takes the 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 variability out of the system so you can get better results and it makes sense for GE to do it. I just don't know how much money they would save in terms of labor. It, maybe there's some cost savings in terms of materials because you only use less of it. That's one of the points. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing for GE to, and LM to take on, honestly. So moving on, and this was a, a talking point from our last couple podcast episodes about how, you know, whether or not fossil fuel companies are going to start to diversify or maybe just, at, you know, slowly convert into more of a, a either just an energy corporation or a renewable energy corporation. So Anschutz is a, they're sort of the parent company behind TransWest. TransWest um, is creating a 732 mile high voltage power line that's going to carry power from, you know, Wyoming all the way down to Las Vegas. Uh, and so this is interesting because Anschutz has been you know they've made their their fortune essentially on uh, shale deposits in Wyoming, and they're tr- are traditionally a, a big big on fossil fuels. So now, as we look to them, as they're starting to really heavily invest in Wyoming wind, you know, is this another company? Um, you know, I'll throw this to you, Rosie. Is this another example of you know fossil fuel companies seeing the writing on the wall, or is it just them trying to di- diversify and maybe just hedge their bets and kind of wait and see what happens? Well, I think that they do see the writing on the wall. And I was actually talking about this with somebody the other day about the difference between fossil fuel companies and the governments that have traditionally been influenced by fossil fuel companies. And I, um, I, I'm actually pretty excited that we've gotten to the point now where even fossil fuel companies can see that the only way to, you know, ensure they're still making money in, in a decade's time is to get on board with renewables because the economics is just there um the world is clearly going in that direction and i think because you know they're a company and know they'll be here or you know they really want to be here in 10 years time it gives them different incentives than governments who are much more capable of just ignoring anything that's you know more than three years in the future so i actually think that this politically is going to be really great because presumably they continue to put pressure on governments you know which has been terrible um in the past for action on climate change but um at least now we've got you know uh, more and more of the people trying to influence government are pushing in the same direction for renewables and um yeah so uh, you know like nobody really likes to see fossil fuel companies like rewarded for um for what they've the damage that they've done in the past but if I think practically, I think that their involvement is a real just sign that the momentum is there and the clean energy transition is happening no no matter what. Alan, do you see it that way? <laughs> I I think there's there's real long term investment uh, look at what the large companies are going to do, right? So 
in this particular case, you're trying to diversify out just in, because politically in the United States, you're never sure what's going to happen, right? I recall we had Trump and now we have Biden. So there's just complete opposite of the spectrum in terms of policy. So you're, you you need to play both sides. And I, I kind of wonder if it makes sense uh, to to really be in both because you just never know what's going to happen next. Every four years, you're going to have the same sort of flip-flop. I, I, I see that coming again, honestly. The, 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 the thing about this project, which I think is interesting, is where they are developing it at and where they're driving the energy to. So they're taking it from Wyoming. And if anybody's been to Wyoming, there's it's pretty open space. There's not a lot of people in Wyoming. Obviously, they're going to uh, Las Vegas, where there's there's a lot of lights and things, but there's not that much need for that much more additional power. And, and obviously, Las Vegas is like a, a break point where they can transmit it to Southern California or somewhere else. But yeah, I also kind of wonder, too, if Nevada is super happy about this because Nevada is making the play to be the next California. So everybody in California that doesn't want to pay $5 for gas or have uh, the, the state on fire like it is right now uh, is moving to Nevada. And Nevada needs – Nevada has a lot of the water that California uses. So Nevada's sitting pretty. They just need some electricity, and they're the new California. So I, I, I kind of wonder if, if it's more of a state play of Nevada positioning itself with Tesla. Like going to be moving out somewhere, and Tesla's already in Nevada, that the more electricity generation you can pump into the state, particularly renewables, makes it much more, uh, it makes it easier for a company like Tesla to leave California and to show up in Vegas or Reno or wherever they want to go. So this, this, is a, this is like a multiple level play, I think. And that's what makes it interesting is that there's so many facets to this deal. And it, all it takes is one of these little dominoes to flip over and the whole thing collapses. But it is there is a big shift in the United States and where energy is being created and where it's going, uh, which sort of shows you where the future population centers will be. All right. So in our last segment today, we're going to talk about iron air batteries, which have been in the news cycle. You know, there's uh, Form Energy is a startup that's backed by Jeff Bezos. Um, and they've just released some of the information about how the technology works, uh, which I'm going to let one of you, one of you uh, engineers explain to the world. But the, the real breakthrough here is that this is a they're hoping can, it can get to one tenth of the cost of the storage cost of lithium ion. And it's going to be a longer duration in comparison to lithium ion. It's not necessarily going to be a true long duration, but fall somewhere sort of in the middle. Um, so, Alan, how does iron air battery storage work? Let's let's start there. Well, it simply takes iron powder and air uh, are the two ca anode cathode to the, the battery. And then it has an electrolyte in the middle, very similar to an alkaline battery you buy at Walmart or somewhere. Uh, and that makes the a battery cell. So the way, if you think about it very simplistically, the iron turns to rust uh, from the oxygen from the other side. That's generically how it works. And then if you apply electricity the other way around, you turn the iron rust back into iron and oxygen again. So it's a reversible process and it'll hold store energy for a relatively long time. Unlike like the lithium ion batteries that are in your iPhone, which lasts a couple of hours, relatively speaking. So form energy, which is doing a lot of this work is saying, Hey, this is not a permanent storage solution, but it is 
long enough that you could ride out some peaks and troughs in the, the in the grid in, in case you had a, a freezing event in Texas, you may be able to get through it because they're saying roughly 100 to 150 hours is their sweet spot for this battery technology, which would make a huge difference. And as Rosemary's going to tell us, that's a huge difference because you can essentially store energy in, that you generate from solar, solar and wind during the daytime and use it at nighttime or use it to do other fancy things. And I, I think that is where this is going. Um, the the real trick to it is all the financial business stuff on the backside. So the technology is cool, but the business side is really fascinating too. So Rosemary, can you explain a little bit more? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm really excited about the the potential of it. I, I think it is early days. Maybe, um, you know, when you dig into it, it's maybe a little bit earlier than you might get the impression based on some of the reaction, which is, you know, the case for any new energy technology you ever see reported. You always, um, it always turns out to be further away than you think. So I think that their first... Um, their first prototype plant is going to come, they're planning to come online in 2023. So it's not imminent, but on the other hand, obviously they've worked through the vast majority of their issues before they would be at the point where they could be planning, I think it's a 300 megawatt um, battery to start off with, which is, you know, large for a, what I would call a, a prototype. So I guess, or I think they're calling a pilot plant. So it's really exciting. And the, um, the length of the storage, I think is really good because in like, um, high quality renewables areas like uh, the Australian, you know, East Coast grid and like actually in California is, I mean, 100, 150 hours, that's going to get you through like nearly every single um, kind of downtime that you might have. It wouldn't be necessarily enough for somewhere like Northern, Northern Europe where they have much bigger seasonal variations. But, you know, for those of us lucky enough to live in places where the sun shines nearly every day and um, the wind, you know, doesn't stop for more than a few days across the whole grid, I mean, it's really, um, yeah, it's really perfect. I'm still waiting to see a few details. Like I haven't seen the round trip efficiency, the cycle life. Um, yeah, and the, even the charge and discharge rates. I haven't seen a lot of detail on that yet. So I'm looking forward to, you know, getting some of that filled in. But yeah, within a couple of years, we should should know whether the, the hype is going to live up to expectations. But the potential's there for it to be really, really big breakthrough. And Rosemary, one of the things that uh, you read in the publications and what they're actually pushing out as information right now is saying that iron air batteries have a higher energy density than lithium ions. Like it's not even close that lithium ions can only store so much density wise, weight wise than an iron air battery. But it does seem odd that they, that the battery that they're creating is not, doesn't have that energy potential, so to speak. Like there's, there's, it's not as efficient as the, "Quote unquote theoretical." Is is there more room for growth in this? Is it still early? Is it still really early? And we and this is just the the first baby steps. You think? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is. It is really early. I mean, we never even heard the chemistry until um, yeah, like a, a week ago. Um, and uh, I mean, for me, it's also really interesting to get an alternative to lithium ion because you know we need those batteries for portable applications still, um, uh, even though the energy density is better in this. Um, it's iron air battery. I don't think anyone's proposing to use it for transportable applications. So I I have always wondered why we're using all our rare, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of 
minerals in a lithium-ion battery that are, aren't going to scale very easily. You know, supply chains are, are going to struggle to keep up with the extra demand for all the EVs that are going to come online and then using the same materials for stationary batteries. I, I think it's it's so great if we've got an alternative for them. Even if it wasn't, you know, better than lithium-ion batteries, it will still be an important addition because, you, um, yeah, it's going to help to, you know, funnel the lithium, the cobalt, um, even nickel and everything else you need in a lithium-ion battery can can go for where it needs to be portable. So I find that part of it really exciting. Yeah, and can I'll toss this up to either of you, but I think it's, you know, you start to hear this duration thing. I think most of us, myself included, I'm not an engineer, you think of, all right, I have a battery in my phone, I have a battery in my laptop, I turn my computer on and the battery just discharges to power it. I don't think I've never thought of duration. So can you can you kind of explain for the layman out there, including myself, what, what do we really mean by duration? Like, why would I want a battery to be longer or shorter? And like, how does that can you kind of give an analogy or something where where like I said, the consumer electronics, we can maybe relate that to what we mean here with the grid? Um, yeah, so I think it's mostly not a matter of can a battery last that long. I mean, you could charge a lithium-ion battery, leave it sitting there, and then a week later use the electricity. But um, the economics wouldn't be there to do that. So that's why you see like a hydropower dam is great long-term storage because you can add a lot of capacity to that dam without adding a lot of cost. So you can make the dam wall twice as high, get twice as much water in there. It doesn't cost that much more. More, but you know you've doubled your your duration. Whereas for a lithium ion battery, you just need you know you double your your duration and you double the cost. So because um, you just need twice as many batteries, basically. So usually it's some sort of economic thing. There are in some cases like if you're thinking about a thermal battery or something, then yeah, you're going to get losses over time. So it's not purely as simple as that, but generally it's an economic consideration which is why it's kind of hard to to grasp why we can't just use lithium-ion batteries for everything okay so it's yeah. it's the duration of storage without being used is that right so i don't th i don't really care that my laptop maybe loses some charge over five days if i don't use it because you know what did it cost me in my electric bill to charge my laptop right but if you're charging 300 megawatts of electricity and that's your business and you lose 30 percent of it because it hadn't wasn't needed and that's where it becomes really costly. Is, is that right? Did I summarize it correctly? Yeah. And if you've paid a whole lot of money for a battery, um, you only make money when you discharge it, right? So if you are only discharging once a week, then you're making a lot less money than if you're discharging twice a day. So that that's basically the equation that um, people financing battery projects are looking at. Well, and just the reuse, the, the number of cycles that you can charge and discharge a battery is really super critical here because on an on a iPhone, when it dies, it dies, right? You can re replace it. If you're talking about gigawatt hours of energy storage, you don't want to be constantly replacing the cells. You want it to be able to charge and discharge. And, and what tends to happen on other forms of batteries is slowly the chemistry decays. There's, there's other types of chemical reactions that are happening uh, simultaneously to the one that you want. And um, like in a lithium ion, eventually it won't charge anymore. As we well know, eventually a lithium ion after four or five years is essentially a, a dead battery. You can't do it. So from a utility scale problem, you want that battery to last 20 years without touching. I mean, this is your dream, right? That you can just put a, 
a real battery, an energy storage device out in the desert, and it can just sit there, and I don't have to do anything to it because the chemistry is so simple that I, I have this money-making machine. I mean, that would be better than Vegas, right? If you have that sort of technology, you are like a casino. Every time you discharge it, you just cash in the bank, which is why the the, the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos and, and the Tesla uh, people are all congregating around this new business because if it wasn't going to generate that kind of money, they wouldn't be anywhere near it. Now, now Bill Gates has got a, a little bit different story, but you know the others not so not so much. So you got to wonder that in terms of a long term play, once you make that initial cost investment, it is then just playing the markets in in terms of energy. When you discharge it, can you hit California up and you know make them pay three times the amount that you're right, which is what. Enron did back in the 90s, right? I mean, this is the, you're kind of building this sort of Enron situation because you're going to be playing the power markets and the battery becomes inconsequential to your ability to manipulate and control power markets, which is where I think this is going. Yeah, I love mixing Enron and the. <laughs> what did Enron make? Enron made nothing. Enron was a trader, was a power trader. That's all that they were. Now, this is a little bit different because you're going to have to go out and create and form energy. You have to go create batteries and sell them. Someone has to buy them. But once you do that, where's your, where's your cost? Where's your infrastructure cost? It may not, there may not be any, right? And, I, and because the demand for intermittent energy is going to be higher as we get into the uh, electric vehicle explosion that's in theory going to happen we're going to be charging cars at night we're going to be generating solar energy and wind energy during the day somebody's got to store that <laughs> so there you go there, there's your marketplace and, and i think that's eventually where it'll go what was that was enron ever a legitimate business though like i want to clarify and maybe they were but yeah obviously oh, sure. they were a huge what was sure. it ponzi scheme essentially no, but I mean, did they, they were, actually do legitimate work for some for some time before defrauding everyone? They're a power trader, but they're playing both sides of it, and I, I think th that's what got them in trouble. Is they're limiting, they're controlling how much power or they want to deliver, particularly to California. And California had open rates, and so they would just hold it until California was desperate, and then they release it at fifteen thousand dollars a kilowatt hour. This sounds like the plot of a James Bond movie. Maybe in twenty twenty seven. Iron Air batteries yeah. will be controlled by a villain named, I don't know. Well, let's have, have we not said for the last 50 years, whoever can, if, if we could create the battery, you're going to control the world. That, I mean, that on the engineering front, I'm an electrical engineer by training. That's, that's what everybody has said the money was, right? It's not in making, it's not on making iPhones. The money is in making a battery that has long-term storage because then you can control the success of nations and then that's what it'll be and and you will become and you know jeff bezos money will look like nothing compared to this if they can pull it off and i think that's you know it's like nuclear power it's one of those magical things that we never thought we could ever get to and, and yet here we are um but the battery technology is going to be super cool so so rosemary globally do you see this kind of technology catching off 
obviously this this pilot project is going to be in uh, it looks like it's going to be in minnesota great river energy is a minnesota-based company um that's i'm not sure if the project will be in actually in minnesota but do you see this being uh first a u.s thing do you feel like some countries will jump on this sooner than others what do you what do you see as far as like the global reach i think in general the u.s has um already got longer duration batteries or they're using them for longer durations than other countries um and i'm not 100 percent sure for the reason uh, about the reason for that um so i guess that based if that trend continues then yeah you would see it in the u.s first and it's a u.s company so of course it's easier for them to maintain new projects that are that are located there so i'd say yes but um yeah i think it could potentially be really beneficial in a lot of places so we just gotta wait and see how many unexpected problems they have in between now and their 2023 uh commissioning date and um yeah but if everything goes the way the press release says then it's incredibly exciting and is this going to change the complexion of the way wind farms are built you know we we talked about this big hydrogen wind uh plant that's going to be built in australia Uh, i'm sure you've heard and i mean is this going to continue to sort of maybe this trend of like when we build a new thing on this site it's going to be like this theme park like there's going to be a huge battery you know a couple acres of battery there's going to be a couple acres of wind there's going to be ammonia there's going to be hydrogen i mean do you see it continuing to flesh out that way or will it maybe kind of remain segmented yeah i mean i think a really good battery like a you know something that's a lot a lot cheaper and longer duration than what we've got available now it's kind of in a way a competitor to hydrogen green hydrogen because a lot of people think of that as uh um you know a way to smooth variable renewables which i've personally always been a little bit skeptical that that will end up being how it's used um but on the other hand it will also support hydrogen in that you know if you've got more battery storage then you can run your electrolyzer 24 7 which is probably the only way to make good money from it so um it'll be interesting to see exactly how that pans out but in general you know both this you know large um interconnector that we just talked about um big batteries all of that is just going to really turbocharge how fast we can go from you know like 20 percent renewables to 90 percent um or even you know like really with this battery that it will make it easy to go even further beyond 90 percent. so that's the exciting part well that's going to do it for today's episode of uptime thanks so much for listening remember in the today's or in today's show notes you can sign up for uptime tech news so if you enjoyed today's conversation and you want to be notified of the next podcast episode drop sign up in the show notes below whether you're on youtube itunes spotify stitcher be sure to subscribe to our channel on youtube be also sure to uh subscribe to rosemary's channel on youtube you'll find engineering with rosie on youtube she does a great job explaining so much in the renewable energy industry uh engineering problems all the whys behind wind energy uh, hydrogen all that good stuff so you'll find her links as well in the show notes thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time on the uptime wind energy podcast Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. 
We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. This is why it just makes sense to install a WeatherGuard Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your technicians are going up tower. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.